Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. The 26th Senatorial District is not exactly hospitable territory for Democrats like John Keeney. But the musician from Eureka believes it's important for him to compete in a place that includes St. Louis suburbs and several rural counties. Keeney joins us on Politically Speaking to talk about his platform and the need to support Democratic legislative candidates. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today, she is St. Louis Public Radio State House and Politics reporter. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us via Zoom, he is the Democratic nominee for the 26th Senatorial District. John Keeney. Thanks for having us. Thank you for for being here. Uh, We had your opponent, Republican Ben Brown, on uh, last week, and we wanted to make sure that the people of the 26th District got to hear your views and learn more about your campaign. And the district is a tiny part of St. Louis County, all of Franklin County, all of Warren County, all of Osage County, and all of Gasconade County. And um, I, I want to make sure I got that correct, right? That is correct. And don't forget Allenton don't. and the St. Louis County portion of Pacific. Yes, exactly. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and how you got involved in Democratic politics. Well, uh, I'm a fifth generation Missouri native, which really didn't become relevant to me until I got into politics. Uh, But uh, my family is from Southeast Missouri. I grew up in St. Charles, Missouri. Uh, I'm not gonna tell you what high school I went to, but uh, at the time there was only one Francis South. Oops, I did. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a rural community. At the time, St. Charles was not like it is now. And so we've been out in Franklin County for a number of years, just moved to Eureka last year. And the communities out here, kind of beyond the uh, the St. Louis County area, the Pacifics and the St. Clairs and the Washingtons, uh, or even going into Owensville and up that way, Herman, uh, remind me a lot of what it was like growing up in St. Charles before we had all the casino money and all the development that turned St. Charles into something else. I have been playing music for a living for over 35 years. And uh, I'll play, you know, guitar, bass, whatever to make money. I've toured the country, lived in Boston for 10 years. What brought me into politics, however, was the fact that I spent the last 15 years trying to protect victims of domestic violence and neglect. I've been a foster provider, foster advocate, a legal guardian, and now uh, an adoptive parent. So here we are in politics. Actually, I have a quick side note question. When did you graduate from Francis Howell? 1985. 85. Okay. 
curious. Um, your lot. Okay, never mind. My mom graduated from France Hell, but a while earlier. So, like in the seventies. <laughs> so I was like, maybe there's overlap. There's not. Okay. No. no. <laughs> but I, um, anyway, but yes, that, that's my mom's alum. Um, oh, cool. Are you from Howell? Are you from Howell? <laughs> Sorry. You ran for the Senate seat in 2018. What did you learn from that experience? Uh, primarily because we're on the Politically Speaking podcast, I'll tell you, I learned that I don't know anything about politics when it comes to elections. Um, but, you know, what brought me into this is fighting for my family and the things that we were dealing with, with healthcare providers, with government agencies, with uh, doing behavioral health, with doing skilled nursing facilities, dealing with all that. And so the policy and the budgets and, and those issues are what brought me into politics. And then I realized, hey, wait a minute, my parents were public school teachers and most of my family. So public schools and education became a piece of that. We had had three kids with IEP, so we had already been navigating that. And just so we went down that path. Then, you know, uh, labor. I, well, hey, wait a minute. You know, there are teachers unions. I have friends that were in skilled labor. So that became an issue. I have a black wife and black kids. That is an issue. I have gay uh, gay and married adult cousins who I've you know, known my whole life. That became, oh, wait, there's an intersection. So what brought me into it being dealing with behavioral health and children's division and all these different aspects of being a foster provider, of provide, you know, trying to provide behavioral health, then sort of just expanded into all these other things that I realized intersected your life when it comes to politics and policy. I think you'd be the first to acknowledge that this is a difficult race for a Democratic candidate as all the territory is very Republican leaning. How do you get your message out to people who may disagree with you? I won't be the first. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm definitely not going to be the first and I'm not going to be the last. But here's the thing. What brought me into politics as well is when I was looking for advocates, for people to talk to about the issues that were affecting my family, my kids, my children uh, that I was trying to take care of. I didn't have anybody to talk to that was really had an open ear to what my family was dealing with, to all these things that I was dealing with, with the courts, with the system, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I realized there was no one else running uh, as a Democrat, because my values align largely with the Democratic platform, I am not a Democrat by name that this is what I've, uh, you know, this is why I feel this way. I feel this way. Thus, I become a Democrat. And these values, honestly, Democratic values, if you read the platform and stay out of the news and, you know, what people share on social media, I believe that the Democratic platform, what the Democratic Party tries to do and has been trying to do is to try to make a better, more just, more prosperous, more healthy life for each and every person in this country, whether you live in Missouri, Chamoy, you know, Nebraska, whatever. Uh, that is what draws me to this. And I believe that every person in my district, in my state, in my country should have the opportunity to be prosperous, to be healthy, to be safe. And I believe that the Democratic Party in 2022 is the best op option to try to make that happen for as many American citizens as humanly possible. Would you agree that gaining inroads in the 26th district is crucial if Democrats want to have any chance of winning the second congressional district, which includes all of Franklin County and a big chunk of Warren County? Well, it's no secret to you because you folks are really, really uh, in politics, really 
you watch it year after year after cycle after cycle, and you see how things wax and wane. The Democrats ran the state for 53 years until 2002. There was a big switchover. What I'll tell you is, yes, it's not only important that we get Franklin County in the lower half of Warren County more support for Democrats, and we have to run candidates, but we have 101 rural counties in the state. And so if the Democrats have spent all this time, I love my party, I have I have leadership positions in the party, I've had leadership positions in the party, I intend to have more leadership positions in the party. We have to invest time, energy, money, year after year, after cycle after cycle. There is no off day, there's no Sunday, there's no Friday night for what the Democratic Party needs to do in Franklin County to try to get more votes in for not only having candidates getting better numbers in Franklin County or Warren County, but any of these counties in rural Missouri that are not running Democratic candidates that then filters up to the statewide look. So we yeah. want to get people elected to the executive branch as well with our governor's race. We, we almost went for Obama just not that long ago. But we have to do the work, we have to show up, we have to invest our time and our energy outside of what Franklin County can offer, hopefully from the state level, hopefully from the, the, the national level in order to make those gains. I cannot do it on my own, but I'm standing out here with a few other people that we're trying to do what we can to try to get more democratic support in this area. I think you've hit on a topic that I've talked about on this show for, for many years, and that's how to broaden the Missouri Democratic Party's let me rephrase that. I think you've hit on another topic we've discussed on this show for many years, and that's how to broaden the Missouri Democratic Party's popularity outside of St. Louis, Kansas City, Columbia, and especially in like suburban areas and rural areas. And some have argued that the party should be more welcoming to conservative voters, and others believe that's pointless because they're going to vote for Republicans even if you have conservative candidates. And I understand that this is a really hard problem that I think Democrats nationally are dealing with. But like, what should Democrats do to appeal to more rural voters on an electoral level? Uh, that's a very good question. Here, let me tell you something. I did six candidate forums in this area the two weeks before the primary elections. I was the only Democratic candidate in only for all those except for one instance. I was like the unicorn in the room. There were not very many Democrats that showed up, a couple that I knew did here or there, and I was the only Democratic candidate in five out of those six forums. We have to show up. If you don't show up, if people don't know who you are, number one, you're not fielding candidates, you're not knocking doors, you're not in the Chamber of Commerce, you're not getting involved in the business community, you're not getting involved in the Lions or the Rotary or whatever. That's one of the first things that we can do on the ground level to try to have more relevance in those communities. You know, people like Rush Limbaugh, what Rush Limbaugh got his show started, he came out of Missouri, what, 1988 or so? You know, Rush Limbaugh was all over the place. So conservative talk radio is all over the place in rural Missouri and has been for decades. We have now the internet, we have satellite radio, but there's really no progressive or Democrat or liberal opposition or alternative to that in most of these communities. Once you get outside of St. Louis County, most of what you hear is kind of canned music, uh, as you know, in the radio business, uh, or you have conservative talk radio. And so if, if the Democrats are not showing up, they're not showing up in media, they're not showing up with candidates, they're not helping to build their, their uh, central committees in all these, I mean, literally 101 rural counties, and not many of them have a strong 
Central Committee, and uh, too many of them are not fielding candidates. And then when they have candidates, they're not supporting those. It costs money. So we need to give those candidates money. We need to give resources, provide resources outside of these little pockets of Democrats, or we're going to lose the whole thing. To zoom in on on your campaign a little, so what do you think you would need in order to run a viable campaign? You've touched on this a little bit. Well, I think the first thing is I need to have a good attitude. <laughs> so, you know, with all the things that I've said here, I think it can be very challenging to have a good attitude. So if you know me and, you know, we have a conversation, you hear this interview, you say, John sounds like a very, like, enthusiastic individual that has a lot of energy, a lot of spark, a lot of fire. You know, he doesn't sound like a sad person. He doesn't sound discouraged. Well, it can be tough. This is now my th- third run. Uh, in four and so so change years. Uh, And what can I do to run a viable campaign? Number one, it takes money. So fundraising, if you look at how difficult it is, or I wanna say challenging for a Democrat to run in a lot of areas in Missouri, my opponent, Ben Brown, God bless him. Again, I think he's a nice dude. Uh, If I checked his last three reports, his average donation is like $358 a pop. My average donation is $38 a pop. He has a pack that raised $215,000. You know, uh, there was a 100 pack dumped $175,000 or $170,000 or something into that pack alone. He spent $251,000 between the pack and him. It's money. It's putting, you know, things in mailboxes. It's putting things on your phone in the Google ad. It's Facebook promotion. It's even TV commercials. It all costs money and resources. How do you, and you know, there are some candidates outside of these areas who are raising a lot of money. But again, I think to be viable, you have to have money, but you've got to hit those doors. You have to be present in the community because we're fighting uh, literally a culture and and a a political, uh, let's say, reality that like you said i i was on i was on the um the ballot with jill shoop uh when she was running for congress this last time around uh, i raised as much money as my republican opponent who was an incumbent at the time until the last couple of weeks but i had over 750 donations to get there you know my average donation was like 29 dollars, and her average donation was probably well over 100 she got like 66 donations or whatever it was and i got you know well over 750 so even with raising that money even with people like jill shoop who's a a really well-respected uh, state senator who ran for Congress in the second, who you know you just did an, did an interview with her recently, it was a great interview. She's done so much to try to reach across the aisle and pass these bipartisan bills. I got a, basically the same number of votes in our intersecting precincts as she did. And she spent millions of dollars. She's a very well-respected state senator. So the R and the D is really going to decide a lot of times right now how it's going to go and until we can figure out a way to split those tickets or get more get more enthusiasm for democrats again which i think is just going to happen by showing up showing up showing up showing up you know we got to show up and keep showing up until they go hey you democrats aren't so bad brown talked a lot on the last show about his opposition to covid 19 restrictions and i think that's probably one of the reasons he won just because he's well known for that and he got a lot of media attention like, would you say that his position on that matter is is the mainstream take in the 26th district? Or are you finding that people want more stringent COVID-19 restrictions? Well, let's say this. Number one, nobody, including myself, wants COVID restrictions. 
uh, as someone who has two people, well, I'd say three, two of which I'm responsible for in skilled nursing, uh, I have been through this in trying to keep my kids safe, or we have little ones when they start school and trying to keep myself safe. I'm in the music business. The whole you know industry shut down. I have friends that got sick. I have friends in the music business who have since gotten sick, gotten COVID a couple of times. First time was okay. Second time, not so good. Um, I think that people's, that they're tired. I understand of COVID restrictions. People are tired of not being able to make money. People, uh, you know, they, they don't like to be inconvenienced in general. I think we are a, let's say a, uh, we are in an era of convenience. So people do not like to be inconvenienced, uh, uh, many people. They may work hard and have a, a, a tough job and, you know, have bleeding hands from their job, but for God's sakes, don't inconvenience me. Uh, and so, and, and that's not always the case, but I feel like with at the time when it first came off, I had my father-in-law who was staying with us, who was dying of Parkinson's, who in that era, he died of Parkinson's. My mother-in-law died of, of stage four cancer. So we were in hospitals doing all these treatments in 2020. And it was very important to us. So we try not to get them more sick than they already were. We have a kid in pre-K, as you probably well know, there are a number of disabled kids who also are in the pre-K. And most of them wear masks. Their, their caregivers or parents are wearing masks. The kids are wearing masks. Some of those individuals ha are immunocompromised. So getting, uh, getting exposed to something like COVID can be the difference, a life or death situation for some folks. So how do we keep our businesses open? How do we operate and live our lives while also trying to not get somebody else sick if we can avoid it? A mask is so cheap and easy to do. And honestly, as a guy, you don't have to shave, you know, but I think that it, I still I, I, I mean, when I was I mean? when I was regularly wearing masks, I still shave just for the record. But but yeah, continue. I do, I, I do, too. But I'm just saying it. that's my, my little ad in there. Hey, you don't have to shave. But no, I, I understand that people are tired of it. But there are also people who are who are denying that it existed, that COVID existed, that it was serious. And uh, we have healthcare providers. You know, I, I think about Dr. Clay Dunnigan. I actually taught his kid, John, back in the day. Such smart people, such good people, and people having such hateful things to say about doctors. And, and again, I think you understand how we're, some of us and many of us are so dependent upon uh, healthcare providers to be able to provide really quality health care for ourselves or our, our spouse or our kids or all of the above. And so when we have factions of our electorate, we have elected officials who are attacking people who have devoted their lives to health care, who have devoted their lives to science, who've you know gone to wash you or, or whatever. And they're just very highly were highly respected people in their field. And now, you know, they're just a, a Twitter meme. And I, I, I think, again, it's a cultural thing. I believe that it's important to keep people safe. We've lost over 20,000 people in Missouri in the last two and something years to COVID. Not, that doesn't even mention how many people I know who've gotten long haul and, and been sick from that. We'll be back right after this short break with John Keeney, the Democratic nominee in the 26th Senatorial District. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. 
And we're back on Politically Speaking with John Keeney. He is the Democratic nominee in the 26th Senatorial District, which incorporates a small part of St. Louis County, all of Franklin County, all of Warren County, all of Gasconade County, and all of Osage County. I want to keep delving in on some of the issues that I think voters are, are talking about in this campaign, specifically Missouri's trigger law that banned most abortions in the state after Roe versus Wade was overturned. What What is your opinion on that? And what is just your general view about abortion rights? Well, we'll start at the top. Number one, I am pro-choice. Uh, I will tell you that abortion is right. Personally speaking, as a man, maybe not my favorite thing. And we have you know, spent a lot of time raising kids to try to, to protect them from poor circumstances or try to heal them from poor circumstances. So I, I see sort of the breadth of what can happen to a child in a best case scenario, in a worst case scenario, and everything in between. I am pro-choice. I am also pro-sexual education. So I think our kids definitely have to have access to a factual age-appropriate sexual education. It's not grooming. It's it, This is, we need to teach our children how their bodies work in a way that is that is appropriate, that is age appropriate, so that, that when they get to the age, when they reach adolescence, they have an understanding of how their bodies work. And we're not depending on parents who may or may not provide that information, or they may not have a parent that is it may be a caregiver, maybe another situation. So I think it's just a basic education that people need, that everybody needs, because we all have reproductive issues, whether we're male or female. Uh, also, it's so important when you're talking about family planning that we're also talking about contraception, making sure that women have access to contraception. Uh, it, it's frustrating to me to see that there are actually companies who are trying to pressure healthcare providers or entities trying to, uh, to pressure health uh, care providers to not support contraception. Uh, I believe that if you don't want abortion, if you don't want unplanned pregnancies, let's prevent that from happening by using contraception. Women should have access to contraception. It shouldn't be limited, in my opinion. Uh, so when you go beyond that, we see people who are anti-abortion. They have clearly not put the work in to making sure that if these women who have these children, let's say 60%-ish uh, of the women who typically have an abortion can't afford to raise a child. Let's say they are impoverished. 50% uh, of our births in America are paid for by Medicaid. We have, we're adding all these other births. So if you have these poor women, because women take the primary responsibility, whether there's a partner or not, they are carrying the child and bearing the child, that we have to make sure that they have access to proper health care. And so there's the maternal rate, sorry, the maternal, uh, I'm, I'm losing the word. M maternal mortality rate. Thank you. Back in, the maternal mortality rate in Missouri is, is pretty abysmal. And, and we these issues of parenting, of being a pregnant mother, of being a new mother, need to be better addressed, whether there is abortion freedom or not, whether there's reproductive freedom or not. You know, we have two little ones. The cost of just childcare for people, this, it's, it is so prohibitive for so many people to, on an average salary to try to 
provide to you want to get one of the part one of the spouses one of the parents back to work child care is number one it's hard to get into sometimes and it's very expensive so we need to cover from let's make sure that our children understand how the reproductive organs work the the process let's try to make sure that our women and men have access to contraception and to try to prevent unwanted pregnancies I believe that that does happen. I understand that it happens. Sometimes women are on birth control and still she gets pregnant. And so, you know, it's it's not just being used as birth control. There are so many circumstances that revolve around a woman getting pregnant. And quite honestly, there's a privacy issue. Why do Why would I as a man or as a government have a right to tell a woman what to do with her body? I understand that there's a, a future living being in there but far be it from me to try to tell my wife or my mother or any other woman that i know what to do with her body because it is probably not going to work in my house i think it i don't think it's right and i don't think the government has a right to dictate what a woman does with her body are you hearing from potential constituents that they may disagree with the idea of abortion but feel it should be legal especially under circumstances like when someone is pregnant because of rape or incest Absolutely. And I think you have as well. So, you know, I think the the no exceptions situation where we're at right now has made a lot of, let's say, conservative or more right leaning voters, individuals, women and men, uh, very frustrated. They they believe that while they may uh, like me, they may not be a fan of abortion or to a greater extent, they may not believe that it should be something that is readily available. Uh, they are frustrated that in those cases, and we've, of course, you know, this is in the press about this, the 10 year old girl, the 12 year old girl, and these things do happen. If you're in social work, you see this kind of stuff pretty often, too often. Um, so yes, I believe the Republican voters are going to, or let's say, you know, independent to right-leaning voters are going to really, they're going to be making some decisions this year and, and, and past that uh, into 2023 and 24 about what can where candidates are going to stand regarding reproductive rights. You know, there's been a lot of basically conjecture that this trigger ban, just the overturning of Roe v. Wade, is going to cause a Democratic insurgence of voters. People are going to be going to the polls because they're mad about this decision. So do you think that if Republicans in Missouri don't lose significant ground this election cycle, would that show that Missouri generally supports this trigger law? Um. Uh, no, not necessarily. And, and it goes back to something I discussed earlier. I think there is an issue of culture. There's the issue of in Missouri. I, I see it with labor. I see so many people in labor and, you know, unions, union members who will vote for Republicans who clearly have anti-labor uh, leanings. They, they are against, they're for right to work. They are wanting to end the prevailing wage, et cetera, et cetera. So, the Republicans, a lot of the stuff is codified in the Republican platform, yet union members will vote for people who basically want to end their access to to a, a better wage and to better benefits or benefits at all because of a cultural issue, because they, it could be abortion, it could be guns, it could be LGBTQ individuals. But I, I just see in Missouri that people, I hate to say this because it doesn't sound, I think it's... I don't want to be disrespectful disrespectful to a to a voter and say you're voting against your best interests. But I see that a lot. So I'm just not sure what we saw in Kansas, where on a 
on a ballot initiative, people voted to keep abortion rights. And we've seen that here with labor. We've seen here with Medicaid expansion, with which the Republicans have been trying to roll back in whatever way that they could. We saw it with clean. We've seen it with marijuana. I think we're going to continue to see progressive issues that are popular with voters in Missouri who will then turn around and vote for Republicans in some areas, in a lot of areas, will vote for Republicans who are actually against those policies. There's going to be a special session on taxes soon. Do you think that Missouri Missouri should lower its income tax to 4.8%? Oh, it's a good question that you ask. Uh, first of all, you know, let me talk about how underpaid and understaffed many of our departments are with our state government. If I have to run a budget in my house, I can't not pay people or starve people or you know let their bills go on forever and ever and have a place to stay and have a car and stuff like that. It's common sense. So if we're going to try to give money back and we can't afford to pay our teachers, we can't afford to pay our state workers. We have corrections officers. I believe we're waiting for about $115 million in uh, back pay, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We have departments that are not working well. We have schools that are on four day weeks, we're 25%, over 25%, I believe of our schools now are on uh, four day weeks, mostly because it's it's a tool in teacher retention is my understanding. There were issues with the transportation budget as well. Our budget has swelled that we have that surplus because of mostly federal funding that we've received over the last couple of years, as well as the fact that inflation has brought up revenue because people are paying more. So the sales tax revenue is higher because people are paying more for things, as well as the fact that people have number one, employers have had to pay more money to get people to work. And, you know, they talk about our unemployment is kind of historically low. Uh, we are at kind of some historically low levels for unemployment as well. If you give this money back in the, in the proposal that I've seen, it looks like the average earner in my area is going to get maybe 10, 15 bucks a month back. We're looking at a couple hundred bucks for the average wage earner if they get any back at all, because they may be in a, the lower tier of income tax, you know, payers. So, I, I think that we need money. We can't just say, hey, we got this federal funding and we're, we're flushing cash at the moment because we're going to need it down the line to make sure that our schools are fully funded, to make sure that our transportation budget is fulfilled. And, and we can start thinking about maybe how we can better fund our schools in the future so that there's less of a burden, a local burden on taxpayers that are paying so much in property taxes, which is an issue that Ben brought up People don't want to pay property taxes. We pay property taxes so our kids can go to Rockwood schools. They're great schools. But we also pay a lot in property taxes, personal property taxes. People don't like that. But hey, you know, the taxes pay for libraries. They pay for law enforcement. We, we, we have to figure out a way to pay our bills first. And instead of using uh, taxes as kind of a, a political ploy. We have to make sure that our government is functioning correctly, that our state departments are functioning correctly, that we don't have people who are sick, and I've been through this, who need access to Medicaid, and they are waiting 100 or more days to get Medicaid fixed, hooked up, 
you know, whatever does they need to do? If you're 73 or you're 75 and you're disabled and you have to work with Medicaid to get care and you need it today, you need it next week, you don't have three months to wait for the Department of Health and Senior Services or whoever it is, or, you know, our, our health net to figure out how to handle your case. It's just too challenging and it harms Missouri citizens. Before we get into uh, some quick hits on the election. Are there any specific issues that we haven't touched on that you would want to focus on in the Missouri Senate if you're elected in November? That's a good question. Well, you know, we have touched on some stuff. And, and as we discussed before, when I first got into this, me personally, it was it was foster care. It was taking care of kids. It was skilled nursing. It was behavioral health, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, my my purview has expanded. I There are four rural counties in this district, in Senate District 26. Like I said, I grew up in St. Charles, and St. Charles, that whole area was rural when I was a kid, and I drove past farms all the way to school and all the way back uh, up until through high school. Uh, and I see, and I drive around, I, we've lived out here, the struggles, the challenges that people in these rural communities continue to have and have had generationally. Your job, in my opinion, first and foremost, even though your decisions affect everyone in the state, is that you have to try to improve the lives of the people who live in your district. I see a lot of folks in my district who need some help. We need to help build or rebuild and revitalize our rural communities. How can we do that? We need to attract businesses. We need to help small businesses start, grow, thrive in these communities. We need to make sure that our kids in these communities are getting a, a competitive education. So hopefully they don't move out of their communities, but we also provide them with meaningful jobs that pay a living wage in their area. We need to make sure that these people have access to healthcare. In the rural areas of Missouri, so many people do not have good, uh, reliable access to healthcare. If there's a crisis, a, a dealing with that crisis could be an hour away or more for some people in rural Missouri. So we need to do better with that. Uh, economics from the schools to you know and there there are these hot button issues like crt like trans stuff listen these these are just political politicized issues they have nothing to i say because i've heard it on the campaign trail this last few months in gasconay county at a farm bureau event in gerald missouri in warren county Listen, these people need jobs, they need meaningful work, they need a living wage, they need access to health care, they need good schools so that our next generation is going to be ready to work competitively and make money and be prosperous and healthy in the 21st century. So we're going to go into a political lightning round. What do you think of Trudy Bush Valentine and how do you think she will fare against Eric Schmidt? I'm a Democrat and I support democratic values. Uh, and the candidates that apparently have the support of the Democratic voters. I hope that I don't know Trudy. I knew the other candidate, Senate candidates and I saw them work hard for 18, 20 months. You know, uh, Trudy is a new thing. She seems like a nice lady. The voters chose her as our nominee to run for, for U.S. Senate in a really hotly contested seat, and she has my full support. I hope she wins, and I hope she can go to Washington, D.C. and fight for democratic values that help the people in my district, in my state, in my country. What would you say would be success for Missouri Democrats in this cycle? 
Well, I, I can give you a great example. Number one, of course, Trudy Bush Valentine, which you just asked me about. I would love for us to have another Democrat representing the state of Missouri in Congress. But here's an example. When I ran the first time for state Senate in 2014, the Democratic candidate got about 13,000 votes. When I ran in 2018, I got over 30,000 votes. That was 17,000 more Democratic votes uh, in 2020. I got a thousand more votes than the person who had ran previously. And I, I did actually better, like four points better than anybody else on the ballot in the Franklin County portion of my house district. What I want to see is I want to see us showing up and getting more votes. If we, if we can't win in Senate District 26 as Democrats, if we can't win in these rural districts, what we can do is get more Democratic voters to the polls in November so that we have a better chance of winning these statewide races for U.S. Senate for the gubernatorials and stuff that are happening in 2024. Do you feel that other Senate candidates feel supported by the Democratic Party at large, even if they face long odds of actually winning? No, we have a lot of issues with the Democratic Party in Missouri. I've held a number of leadership positions in the party over the last couple of years, including vice chair of the third congressional, uh, treasurer for the Franklin County Dem Democratic Central Committee, three statewide committees, et cetera, et cetera. I intend to try to get some more leadership positions in the future. We need to do better. We need to do better. And, and far, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. We have to invest time. We have to invest energy. And we have to invest money in the campaigns. I believe in the Howard Dean 50 state strategy. It worked for Obama. I think we have to invest, even when it seems tough in these areas where our candidates are having a hard time. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for People that live in the 26th district, as we mentioned before, you can listen to Republican Ben Brown's podcast along with this one, and hopefully you can get an informed opinion about these two candidates in this important race. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Sarah? That's Sarah K. Kellogg, two L's, two G's. And how can people either follow you on Twitter or, or if you want to provide people with more about your campaign website or other parts of the World Wide Web where you're on, now is the opportunity. Uh, yes, you can find me at www.johnkiehne.com, and that's Keeney, John Keeney. You can find me on social media pretty much everywhere at John Keeney for Mo. Thank you very much, and until next time, so long. From St. Louis Public Radio, this is Politically Speaking. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. 
Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.